It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20 year old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift, it's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Lift 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. Carol Clare wanted to be invisible, to just fade into the background like wallpaper and not be noticed. She longed for it, that comforting blanket of anonymity. And even though we live in an age when it seems like everyone wants to be rich and famous, to be featured in the next viral video or to get discovered as the next big reality star, all Carol really wanted to do was just vanish into obscurity. She was an old woman in her 70s now, and she'd spent years carefully cultivating a life for herself in which invisibility was a real possibility. She lived in a small town in Ohio, a place so average and unremarkable it could have been any of hundreds of other little Rust Belt towns just like it. For a time, she worked as a janitor, and she studied to be a medical assistant. They were boring jobs, quiet jobs, invisible jobs for an invisible life. Back in 2007, she got married for the first time to a retired machinist named Frederick Clare. He was just right for Carol, a regular guy, quiet and unassuming, the kind of guy who volunteered in his spare time as an observer for the National Weather Service. Frederick was 74 when they met, while she was 63. But at their ages, who cares about the difference in years? He was a good man, a steady man, the sort of person who got enjoyment from watching the weather and taking notes on the water level of the river that ran near their house. He was exactly the sort of person who could fit right into Carol's quiet, boring life. They enjoyed each other's company, they had a lot in common. He made her smile, made her laugh, made her feel like she was the most important person in the world. They liked to gamble. It's how they met, at a casino. Neither one of them were high rollers, but they both liked to drop a few bucks now and again at the tables. Maybe plunk some change into the slots. Maybe even get a quick thrill when the dials came in hot and the bells began blaring, and the change rained down in the tray. It was a good life. A boring life. A life far removed from the life Carol lived a long time ago. Back before they made movies about her, and Springsteen wrote songs about her. 
Back before prison. Back before the murders. Back when she was still Carol Ann Fugate. Back when she was still a good girl who met a bad boy who did some very bad things. Back before she met and fell head over heels for Charles Starkweather. I'm Nate Hale and I'm not bad. I'm just misunderstood. And this is The Conspirators. Charles Raymond Starkweather was born on November 24, 1938, in Lincoln, Nebraska. He was the third of seven children. His parents, Guy and Helen Starkweather, were poor, but respectable members of the community. Guy Starkweather was a carpenter by trade. But because of his rheumatoid arthritis, he often found himself unable to work. Helen had to pick up occasional work as a waitress in order to make ends meet. Growing up, the kids Charlie went to school with gave him a hard time. He was born with misshapen legs, and he walked funny. He talked funny, too. It wasn't his fault. He developed a speech impediment at an early age. Kids can be cruel, and they zeroed in on these things, and teased Charlie mercilessly for them. He was a lousy student, and he eventually dropped out of high school. Before then, the only subject Charlie found he was ever any good at was gym. Charlie became a bruiser. He threw himself into physical activity and focused his anger on making himself stronger, tougher, meaner. And pretty soon, Charlie was the one doing the bullying around town. Charlie had a friend in high school named Bob Von Busch. The Charles Starkweather Bob knew was full of contradictions. At times, he could be the kindest person you ever met. If he liked you, Charlie would give you the shirt off his back. And he was funny, too. He was quick to laugh, and he liked to crack jokes. But that was only one side of him. Charlie had a meanness in him, and he went around town acting like he had something to prove. If Charlie saw somebody walking down the street who was bigger than he was, better looking, or better dressed than him, He tried to take him down and show everyone he was the toughest guy in town. In 1956, when Charlie was 18, he dropped out of his senior year of high school and got a job at a newspaper warehouse. It was through his friend Bob that he was introduced to 13-year-old Carol Ann Fugate. Carol thought he was cute, with his greased back hair and that knowing smirk of his, and those steely blue eyes that seemed to stare right through her sent shivers up her spine. She liked that he was older, and she liked that he was a bad boy, or at least tried to be. The year before, Charlie had gone to see Rebel Without a Cause at the local Bijou, and in James Dean, he'd found his role model. Here was another guy like him, a bit of a misfit, a quiet loner, but secretly a sensitive guy. Charlie wanted to be just like Dean. He bought a leather jacket slicked back his normally red hair with so much grease it turned black, started smoking the same cigarettes as Dean, learned to swagger when he walked the same way as his hero. It was either love at first sight, or it wasn't for Charlie and Carol. It all depends on who you ask. 
In later interviews, Carol claimed that when the infatuation passed, Charlie began to scare her, and she told him to stay away. Other people say the pair were inseparable, the kind of teenage romance you only saw in the movies. Like the entire world was made just for them, and everyone else were just extras playing their respective roles in their own private love story. Charlie taught Carol how to drive. One day she crashed his 1949 Ford into another car. Charlie's father had to pay for the damages since he was the car's actual owner. This led to a massive blowout between the father and son that caused Charlie's dad to kick him out of the house. Soon after, Charlie quit his job at the warehouse and got a job working as a garbage collector. Charlie hated the job. It was dirty and demeaning, and he felt like it was below him. He just knew he was destined to do something great one day. And it most definitely did not involve picking up other people's food waste and dirty diapers. Charlie felt like he had reached the lowest point in life, and that if he didn't make a change, didn't find some way to climb back up and be something more, then a garbage man would be the only thing he'd ever be. He developed a new philosophy, one he'd live by for the remainder of his days. Dead people are all on the same level. On November 30th, 1957, Charlie stopped by a local service station where he saw a stuffed animal on one of the shelves. Thought Carol would love it. Girls went crazy for that sort of thing. The problem was he didn't have enough money to pay for it. He went to Robert Colvert, the service station attendant, and tried to convince him to let him pay for it on credit. Robert looked at him like he was something he just scraped off the bottom of his shoe and told him to get lost. It was that look he gave him that set Charlie off. It burned at him, this know-nothing townie looking at him like he was trash. Charlie left the station fuming, but he came back several times more that night, making little purchases and trying again and again to convince Colvert to let him have the stuffed animal. But Colvert wouldn't budge, wouldn't give him the respect he deserved. That was when Charlie left one last time, only to return with a shotgun. Charlie pointed the gun at the man, and all of a sudden it was like the world changed right before his eyes. Now the guy was giving him the respect he demanded. There wasn't any more of this looking at him like he was nothing. Charlie told him to empty the safe, but the guy didn't know the combination. Charlie settled for what was in the register, nearly $100, mostly in coins. Charlie told himself he didn't know what he was going to do, even as he led the man out back behind the station. But deep down, he really did. Things didn't go quite as planned because Colvert made a move on him when he wasn't expecting, and the two of them wrestled over the gun. Then the gun went off and all of a sudden Colvert was lying there dead. Charlie knew he should have felt bad, but in truth, he felt amazing. It was like he'd burst out of a cocoon, and suddenly the world had opened up around him to a whole host of new possibilities. He was living in a new reality now. One in which laws didn't apply to him, and guilt was meaningless. He went and told Carol what had happened. Not the whole story, of course. He fudged a few parts and claimed that he'd only robbed the place, and that someone else must have killed the guy. Carol didn't believe him. Charlie didn't like that one bit. 
Carol was his girl. She had to believe him. She just had to. According to Carol, this was the moment when she first started to fear Charlie, and it would cause her to tell him to stay away from her. But Charlie was just getting revved up. What followed next would be a killing spree that would forever earn Charles Starkweather his place in the history books. There's a lot about what went down between Carol and Charlie that comes down to he said, she said. In Carol's version of events, which she told reporters in the court many times over, she was just an innocent hostage who got dragged along against her will. But Charlie, on the other hand? Well, Charlie had another story to tell. On January 21st, 1958, Charlie went to Carol's home to smooth things over with her folks. Caroline Fugate's mother and stepfather, Velda, and Marion Bartlett couldn't stand Charlie. He was too old for her, they thought, and he was no good for her. When he got there, things didn't go as he'd hoped. They argued with him, and according to Charlie, Velda hit him and told him to get lost and never come back. He didn't leave, though. He waited around their front yard for Carol to return home from school. We don't know the exact order of events that followed but we know enough. By the time Charles Starkweather was done with Carol's family, her mother, stepfather, and -and two-and-a-half-year-old sister Betty Jean Bartlett were all dead. Velda had been shot in the face and her skull crushed by the butt of Charlie's shotgun. Marion had been shot and stabbed. Worst of all, the baby had been strangled and stabbed to death. Charlie and Carol dragged the bodies out of the house. Velda's body was stuffed down inside the outhouse hole. Marion's body was dumped in the chicken coop. They put the baby in the garbage box. For the next six days, the couple lived inside the house together, during which time Carol turned away all visitors, including her sister, grandmother, brother-in-law, and Charlie's brother, telling everyone who came to the door the whole family was sick. Carol even posted a warning note in the door that read, Stay away. Everybody is sick with the flu. It was signed Miss Bartlett, with the name underlined twice. Carol later claimed this was her attempt to signal that there was something wrong, since the only Miss Bartlett in the house was the baby. Carol's grandmother only put up with this for so long before she started threatening to summon the police. Charlie knew they had to get out of town, so he and Carol fled together, driving 15 miles southeast to the town of Bennett, Nebraska, where a man named August Meyer lived. August Meyer was a 70-year-old friend of Charlie's parents, and he'd always been nice to Charlie. But Charlie killed him anyway, with a shotgun blast to the head, and then killed his dog, too. But then Charlie got the car stuck in the mud, and he and Carol were forced to abandon the vehicle. A couple of local teenagers named Robert Jensen and Carol King were driving by and stopped to give them a ride. Charlie flashed them that crooked smile of his, then he pointed the shotgun at them. He forced them at gunpoint to drive them to an abandoned storm shelter in Bennett. There, he shot Jensen in the back of the head, then attempted to rape Carol King, but was unable to do so. This infuriated Charlie, and he fatally shot her in a rage. At least that's one version of events. In another version, Charlie would admit to shooting Jensen, but he claimed it was Carol Fugate who shot the girl out of jealousy. Carol and Charlie drove away in Jensen's car. They went to a wealthy section of Lincoln, 
where they broke into the house of industrialist C. Lauer Ward and his wife, Clara. They were exactly the sort of people Charlie hated all his life. Rich and good-looking, living in a beautiful home and driving fancy cars, they had everything that he'd been denied since birth. Clara and the maid were home when they got there. They tied the maid to a bed and ordered Clara to make him some coffee and pancakes. Charlie got a kick out of making the rich old lady do whatever he wanted. He eventually tired of her and he stabbed her to death and then killed the maid too. He came across the morning newspaper on the front porch and was thrilled to see his name plastered all over it. Finally, he'd made the headlines. That meant he was a big shot now. Now no one would ever forget his name. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. They remained in the house all day and into the evening until Mr. Ward arrived home. Then Starkweather shot and killed him too. Charlie and Carol grabbed as much of Mrs. Ward's jewelry as they could find. Then they hopped into Mr. Ward's 1956 Packard and hit the road again. By now, all of Lancaster County was in a panic. Every major law enforcement agency in the area was on high alert, doing a house-to-house search for Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. Nebraska Governor Victor Anderson called out the National Guard. Everyone was looking for the two of them. But Carol and Charlie had already fled Nebraska for somewhere the cops weren't looking quite so hard for them, Wyoming. Charlie and Carol knew they needed to ditch the Packard and find a less conspicuous car. They came across a 37-year-old traveling salesman named Merle Collison sleeping in his Buick along the highway outside Douglas, Wyoming. Charlie got out and tapped the window to wake Collison up, then fired through the side window at him when he didn't get out of the car fast enough. Charlie fired several more rounds, although he later claimed his shotgun jammed and it was actually Carol who killed Collison. He would tell police later on that she was the most trigger-happy person he'd ever met. Charlie had trouble getting the car going. He couldn't figure out how to work the newfangled parking brake on Collison's vehicle. A passing motorist named Joe Sprinkle saw the young couple having car trouble and stopped to help them. Then Sprinkle came over and saw Collison's body stuffed under the dashboard. That was when Charlie pulled the shotgun on him. Sprinkle grabbed the gun and the two of them grappled for it. He managed to wrench it away from Starkweather just as a deputy sheriff pulled up in his patrol car. At that moment, Carol reportedly ran toward the deputy yelling, It's him! He's going to kill me! Charlie's heart sunk when he heard his baby turning on him the way she did. He jumped in the Packard and took off without looking back. He gunned the engine, pressing the pedal all the way to the floor. The sheriff's deputy radioed in that he was in hot pursuit of the fugitive Starkweather they'd all been looking for. Police set up a roadblock near the Douglas city limits, but Charlie blew right through it and kept going. 
The police were roaring up on his tail, lights flashing and sirens blaring. One of the deputies began firing at him out the car window. A bullet shattered the windshield of the car Charlie was driving, and he was showered with broken glass. Some of the flying glass cut him deep enough to make him bleed. Charlie looked down and saw blood all over him, and he didn't know where it was coming from. He assumed he'd been shot, and he finally slammed on his brakes and pulled over. Sheriff's deputies opened fire at the Packard, then ordered Charlie out of the car. Charlie got out of the car with his hands up and allowed them to slap the cuffs on him. Later on, Charlie would admit to police that he'd run out of bullets or else he'd have gone out shooting. A day after his arrest, he would be brought before the Converse County Justice of the Peace and charged with the first-degree murder of Earl Collison. There was some consideration whether they should keep the pair in Wyoming or extradite them back to Nebraska for their crimes. Although capital punishment was legal in both states, what Charlie didn't know was that the current Wyoming governor was a staunch opponent of the death penalty, who often commuted death sentences. Charlie ultimately chose to be extradited to Nebraska, where he expected to have a date with the electric chair. Against Charlie's wishes, his attorneys offered an insanity defense. But it didn't work. And on May 23, 1958, Charlie was found guilty and sentenced to death for the murder of Robert Jensen. It was the only one of his crimes he was tried for. Although early on, Charlie had tried to cover for Carol and claimed she was an innocent victim, as the days grew closer to his date with old Sparky, he began to sing a different tune. Carol, he said, was no hostage. She could have left him any time she wanted. She stayed with him because she loved him. And in fact, the girl was an active participant in every one of his crimes. If I fry in the electric chair, Charlie said, she should be sitting in my lap. Charles Starkweather went to the electric chair alone, and he was executed at 12.04 a.m. on June 25, 1959. The story of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate has lived on and gained the sort of legendary status Charlie always wanted for himself. Numerous books and movies have been made about the two of them, including the classic 1973 film Badlands starring Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. When he was a young man, none other than Stephen King developed a fascination with the duo and actually kept a scrapbook about them. Many musicians, including Bruce Springsteen, have written songs about Charlie and Carol. Recently, Linda M. Battisti and John Stevens Barry published a book titled The Twelfth Victim, in which they argue Carolyn Fugate was innocent of the crimes Charles Starkweather implicated her in. Back in 1958, the courts had a difficult time determining Carol's fate. Was she a victim of kidnapping? Or was she a cold-blooded killer just as Charles Starkweather had told everyone? The jury decided she was guilty and sentenced her to life in prison on November 21, 1958. She received parole in June 1976 after serving 17 and a half years at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women. When she got out of prison, Carol changed her name and settled in Lansing, Michigan. And she worked for a time as a hospital janitor. She married Frederick Clare in 2007, and apart from a single radio interview in 1996, 
She refused to speak to anyone about her involvement in Charles Starkweather's crime spree. She currently resides in a nursing facility after the accident that killed her husband in 2013. Charles Starkweather is buried in Wyuka Cemetery in Lincoln, Nebraska, along with five of his victims, including Mr. and Mrs. Ward. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. Every one of you has helped make this podcast a bigger success than I could have ever dreamed. If you'd like to help us out further, there are a few ways you can do it. First, we've added a donate button to our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, which can help us cover some of the costs of producing this show week after week. You can also tell your friends and family about us and encourage them to subscribe and leave us a positive review on iTunes. Every one of your reviews helps us tremendously. If you're not on iTunes, you can also always find us on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and of course our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again.